Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform Solutions, a new podcast that provides financial institutions insight into marketplace solutions that can help organizations with their digital banking transformation. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, founder and CEO of the Digital Banking Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. Before the rise of PayPal, Venmo, and dozens of other new payment solutions, banks probably didn't look at the payments function as the epicenter for innovation. But times have changed. Digitalization of the front, middle, and back office processes, plus an explosion of fintech experimentation around the world, have turned the payments function into a competitive weapon as opposed to a cost center. In parallel, the rise of contextual embedded finance means that payments innovation is changing the operation models for banks and the industries they serve. Our guest is Mike Cook, global payments leader at IBM. We'll discuss how the center of transformation in banking is focused on payments and how legacy financial institutions can keep pace with a new generation of providers. Welcome to the show today, Mike. Thank you, Jim. Great to be here. Nice to talk with you. So before we start, I want to thank you and IBM for being part of the Banking Transform Solution podcast. Our goal with this podcast is to provide a new format where we'll discuss changes in the bank industries and ways financial institutions globally can partner with market leaders like IBM to support their digital banking transformation. I wonder, Mike, if you could share a bit about your personal background at IBM and in the payment space for those of our audience who may not know who you are. I'll set up front, Jim. I'm a consultant. And for the last decade and a half, I've been working with banks, mostly in a managing partner role, looking after banking in the U.S., financial services in Canada. And in the payments agenda, for the first decade, it was kind of sleepy old payments. It was really important to banks, derive up to a third of their revenue and profit from it. But there wasn't a whole bunch of change or innovation. And I'd say in, in our part of the world, being North America versus Europe or Asia, the kicker came in about five years ago. And when we saw three things that that drove it, there was regulatory modernization that was driven by central banks. There was a digital transformation, which we've just seen accelerated through COVID and, and a surge in digital payments. And we saw, I, I got to find the right words for this, but disruption from the paytechs and fintech markets that were small and undercapitalized and innovative, and they became large and highly capitalized and highly innovative on a very different growth agenda. And so when you put those sort of three change effects together, you see a market with double-digit growth globally, and that in itself draws more capital in and more innovation and more competition, and that creates challenges for some of the incumbents. So it's interesting, as I mentioned in my introduction, there's probably no area of banking where changes occurred more dramatically than in payments. Not only is this where some of the earliest encroachments by non-traditional players occurred, but it's also where some of the strongest threats to legacy banking models exist today. Household names like PayPal, Square, and Venmo, as well as giants like Plaid, Stripe, and TransferWise. Can traditional banking organizations keep up with the innovation and distribution of these fintech organizations, or is that even a goal? I think you need to define keep up. And is it a competition? Is it working in an ecosystem environment where they find their synergies to work together and utilize their respective strengths? I think what's critical for every bank is to find the lane that they're going to play in. 
And we've seen some interesting things. So you see the rise of Stripe, and we've got this private company with 100 billion market cap, incredible consumer traction that needs to get more deep into services. So they sign up with Goldman and JPMC for banking as a service, and everyone has their role and niche in that transaction. We see PayPal now. Wallets, frankly, I, I don't get wallets where I'm going to take my money and put it in a wallet and not gain any interest from it. I don't get it, but the average deposit is $500 that they're sitting on with hundreds of millions of users. And so there's a value proposition there that they have built. There's one last thing, Jim. To compete head-to-head -head suggests you have the same assets, and the, the, the banks have always had the incumbency and the clients. What we see now with these mega paytechs, if there's such a word, they have orders of magnitude more client relationships, and they have orders of magnitude more working capital to create innovation, to drive it, not necessarily with a profit incentive, but with a market penetration incentive. So I think if you take all those factors together, yes, there's absolutely a role for banks to play here, but you've got to pick your lane and focus your capital allocation on that. So it's interesting, you know, as we went through the banking industry forever, mm -hmm. the checking account or current account has been the primary financial relationship for consumers. And in fact, we would even talk in the industry saying, OK, are they the primary financial institution? And we'd say, well, whoever had the checking account. But now we have an interesting dynamic where not only do consumers have more than one transaction account, checking mm -hmm. account, current account, but more importantly, is the foundation for the consumer relationship of the future more centered around payments function or is it still the, the transaction account? Because as you mentioned, you, we have payments providers that we don't even list as payment providers. So probably the biggest one is Starbucks. Yep. You know, that, that's a payment app and, and they're holding a lot of deposits. So at the end of the day, do we have a situation where the consumer is actually more set around the payments relationship, which is really more likely to be a PayPal or something like that? I think my answer, Jim, is yes and. Most of life's big life events have a punchline, and the punchline is paying for something. But that's not what you recognize. If anything, the consumer recognizes it as a bad part of the transaction. And where the digital transformers have created a, a change is that you want to do this, and I'm going to make the payments part seamless. So I think the granddaddy of them all that we've cited for years is Uber. Uber is recognized as having an extraordinary customer experience. And part of that is I can hail my, my driver, and recognize my driver, know when my driver is showing up. But every user I talk to says, there's that joy at the end where I just walk out the car. The payment is invisible. There's no fumbling with cards or, cards or or nonsense like that. And I see that paradigm coming into every transaction. Wouldn't it be great to close on a house where the payment is invisible and there's not phone calls to wires and, and th that awkward pause when a million dollars is or isn't in, in, in motion? When that is seamless, the transaction itself, the hiring a car, the, the buying a house, the moving movement of bonds and stocks, the payment is invisible and seamless, that's the experience that's delightful. So it's essential to so many life events, but it's not really the event. And I think that's the biggest change you mentioned. We used to get a checking account so we could write checks. We're now transcended that into another level of digital innovation. 
Well, you know, that's interesting. So from a retail consumer perspective, the growth of alternative payment providers has been the result of solutions that are simple, fast, and as you mentioned, often embedded into other platforms such as Amazon, Uber, or more importantly now, even small merchants globally are, are trying to embed payments within their solutions. Is this the foundation for innovation in payments in the future? Simplicity, speed, cost, and ease of use? I think so. I think that making the experience really positive, as in there's no derailment factors from fumbling or waiting or passing the buck or wondering where the money is, that's important. I think the magic is with the the new players coming into the market, they're not burdened with that legacy set of rails and applications and payment hubs and have built it to be cloud-native, forward-thinking, experience-driven, and has all the architectural components in place to do that. And that's one of the areas where some of the incumbent payment providers, and a lot of them are banks, have, have got to deal with that. You know, we talked up front, Jim, about payments modernization, disruption, and digital transformation. There's a fourth unseemly one in many banks, which is legacy te- technology renewal. Right. And, and no one gets fat, rich, and happy upgrading old technology. And so we're back into a capital allocation problem of, I need to invest in these great, wonderful experiences, but I also have to change that underlying architecture. Whereas some of the, the new entrants have gone straight to the cloud with cloud-native offerings that have all the API structures they need to tie into whatever transaction experience they want to get. So, you know, you just mentioned one of the biggest challenges facing the banking industry is outdated infrastructure that has been unable to support the demands of modern payments from a speed, cost, risk perspective. What kind of investments do you believe traditional institutions need to make to reduce technology debt and prepare for the competitive landscape of the future? Is this is this where the cloud comes in? I think so. And I say that knowing that that is an enormous challenge for every bank. You know, uh, the data we look at says that there's about 20% penetration in banking and moving to the cloud. And it's it's been a lot of the easy stuff. I'll move my email, I'll move some records management, I'll, I'll move HR systems. The actual workload of core banking and payments is very little penetration globally right now. And, and there are good reasons for that in that when you're moving that, we, we have real risks and perception risks. The perception risks of the cloud not being mature or secure or compliant enough is out there. And they will come down with time. I, the, the number one thing we've seen is that with a number of my clients, they pick the cloud provider and then they try and get a control plane in place that would satisfy a regulator. And it turns out that that's 850 specific controls. You've got to place on top of the public cloud for the Fed to say, yep, I sanction this as a compliant cloud for financial services. And and I think all of the hyperscalers are at various stages of getting there. And I think it it transcends banking, Jim. Every industry is going to have that same regulatory requirement. And so the public cloud, I believe, is going to become more industry-specific clouds that meet that control and regulatory requirement that's needed. This is actually one of the areas that IBM has led the way. I mean, you, you've introduced a new cloud solution that really is focused on financial institutions. Uh, you started with Bank yeah. of America, but have built the foundation, which 
you know, at the end of the day, any transformation, any new innovation, any implementation of new back office technology is both functionality, but also the speed of being able to get to market because things are changing so fast. And one of the advantages I think the IBM cloud has is that you built it specifically for financial institutions. There's so many of the, the repetitive questions you have to ask as you implement a cloud solution that are going to be the same from institution to institution. So if an organization is looking to implement a cloud solution, since you've already built the foundation upon which everything else can be built, less time has to be spent on the stuff that everybody has to answer to, regulation and compliance being a lot of this. But on top of that, it allows you the ability to innovate within that context in such a way that it makes it unique to your own institution, doesn't it? Right. And when, when we went through that process, there's lots of good learnings in there, is having a platform, a regulated platform that's good for, say, Bank of America or any bank, is one step of the journey. Banks also run on independent software vendors. ISVs, our good friends ISVs. So as we rolled out the financial services cloud, we've also been a conscious effort to reach out to those big providers in that space, the Temenoses, the, the Finicals, the Infosys, the banks, the Fiserv's, the FISs, who are all delivering capability to those banks because Having a platform is no use if your base software doesn't run on it. So you're taking on the responsibility of first putting up the cloud, then bringing in the ecosystem of partners to certify themselves on that cloud. So all of those reusable measures are now in place for our clients. That, that has become really, really important to all of us. It's also very important to come in with a, a staged model for this. Now, ripping and replacing old to new hasn't worked in our industry. It was the number one way for a CIO to get fired is to try a rip and replace. And so be it in payments, be it in lending, be it in deposit account renewal, you got to come with a notion of progressive modernization to take a structured value-driven approach. God, that sounded like a lot of consulting words, but do piece at a time that drives some value that and value is defined by, I can make this customer experience better, I can drive more automation, I can reduce my next operating efficiency ratio in a measured way that doesn't cause massive disruption. And, and the pieces we see in that are all around, frankly, using cloud techniques around building API frameworks that isolate legacy from their systems of engagement so you can piece by piece break it down and bring it into the cloud and get the value you expect from them. So with that said, I get the impression that you believe, and as I do, that when in competing with the, this increasingly crowded marketplace around payments, mm -hmm. banks are maybe better off not modernizing their own payments infrastructure to offer innovative capabilities, but really relying on other core system providers and partnering with one or multiple fintech firms to support these capabilities. In other words, use those specialists out there that can get you there quicker and easier than to completely transform your whole internal situation yourselves. Would you agree with that? I mean, is that probably a, a better way to go? I do agree with that. And I, I think there's a bigger message there too, Jim. And, and you've seen enough transformation over the years here. It is a high-risk poker game, and it's really tough to do it all on your own. It causes stresses on your organization, stresses on your strategy, stresses on your capital and balance sheet. And so coming up with a definition of what 
a bank-specific value proposition is within the transaction and who are the partners I might join with to deliver on it becomes crucial. I don't think anyone does it on their own anymore. Well, I, I think you know one of the major drawbacks is, except for the biggest firms who are already well down the path, it's really hard to even know what you should do next. You know, I, I get back to your cloud s- solution at IBM. To be able to use the experience of others to build your solution saves you just mass amounts of time and money, but more importantly, gets you to the finish line quicker and allows you to be agile enough and flexible enough to make changes along the way. You know, and a, a little bit of a pivot here. We've seen more and more examples of embedded payments across all industries. Right. Uh, while this initially was in the area of retail commerce, but has quickly expanded to most all areas where payments occur. How do you see this trend continuing and expanding? And also, does this serve to entrench a player, making it more difficult for consumers actually to switch providers as the way they do payments? In other words, when I go to my Amazon.com account, I, I kind of just push the one button that says pay for it. And it doesn't really change who I'm using behind the scenes. It's repetitive, but it's not like I'm making a conscious decision to do so. Do you just see embedded payments just working as an ease and simplification route across the industry? Awesome question. And it's right at the heart of where I think we're at right now. So the first part of the question, embedded payments, absolutely. Now, all of everyone in the payments business is creating their own brand as to why it should be their payments model that should do it. And we're, we're running into a thing right now where there are so many options and they're going to evolve more as real time comes to market and cross border real time comes to market. At the end of the day, the average punter and the average corporation just wants to make a payment. They want to be secure in the fact that it's going to be a good payment, it's going to happen on time, and they're not going to pay a whole lot of money for it. That's their aspiration. And yet we have a vibrantly growing market space into this $3 trillion industry, creating separation and differentiation and why my idea is better than yours. And this may be one of the routes where banks help. Don't worry about that. I will create the central hub. You just want to move money. Uh, That's where the banks have a great brand and trust is we will move money. It's one of the three core functions of a bank. I will figure out that. I will build the payment hub. I will create the APIs to the PayPal's, to the Venmo's, the TransferWise's, the Alipay's, the Tencent's. And I will figure out for you on a trust basis the right way for this to happen so that you get the peace of mind you want in the embedded transaction. All the icky stuff will be managed by me. You know, essentially, you really talked about two areas that are that are so important to me. It's almost behind the scenes we take for granted, but that's trust and yeah. fraud prevention risk. One of the outgrowths of the explosion of digital payments has been the corresponding escalation of fraud. You know, as you get to digital, so many things can happen behind the scenes that we always thought that, you know, cash and, and plastics would create more fraud, but really the digitalization of payments has has made it even more risky and it's harder to keep ahead of the bad guys. To what extent is real-time payments infrastructure able to deal with these threats from bad actors? It can if you've made the transition to real-time infrastructure. You know, one of the the tragedies for the banks on this this move from, you know, sort of batch processing to to real-time, we're now, I think, at 50 countries around the world who have moved to a real-time paradigm. 
is you got to change everything in that infrastructure, including your counter fraud. A lot of traditional counter fraud has been done after the fact in the batch window, and we had a day two to catch and go. When you're settling transactions in 15 seconds, that's gone. And the bad guys love that little crack. And we've seen in every jurisdiction that moved to real time, this spike in fraud literally the day after, because the bad guys are sitting there waiting for, for the vulnerability and jumping on it. Uh, we've also seen the industry respond, ourselves included, with solutions for that. And what, what becomes interesting there is the technology itself is really interesting because any provider in this, this real-time counterfraud space is using AI and using machine learning to identify the patterns as they're happening and build a response to it, which is the, you know, the nirvana of what we seek to get. And what we're finding is our organizations aren't ready for that. Yeah. A counter fraud algorithm at a bank is, is built by a data scientist, it's reviewed by a CRO, a CISO. It, it's weeks and months. And now we have tools in the, in the field that say at two in the morning, this is happening and we can stop it by doing this. Who, who's going to approve me pushing the button to make it happen? And so again, it's the human aspect. I, I believe the technologies are there. We're back around to my, my bugaboo of what are you ready to allocate your capital to this to deal with this now in a plane of many many requests for capital and put it in place and change your organization for it well it's interesting because for for years decades the fraud and risk areas have have been the most advanced in the using of analytics and ai or whatever to figure out how do you stay ahead of of what's happening out there? How can you look right. at what has happened in the past and say when there's an aberration, there's a potential risk? But as you said, now the speed of that has to be just so much more imperative to be able to to get stay ahead of what's going on. What is the business value right now of the high end analytics, machine learning, AI as it relates to payments? We've seen it coming in various forms. In, in counter fraud, as I just said, having your, your machine learning at the core of the counter fraud switch, sensing and identifying patterns of behavior, it, it's doing something that humans can't do. Our problems there are how do we operationally respond to what we found? Because it, at some point there's a decision. We're seeing AI used throughout all of the mid back and mid office that when, when you get under the, the covers of that nirvana of invisible instant payments, there's still a lot of hydraulic activity by humans in the background that the payments processors and banks are rapidly processing and they're getting there through the use of AI and inference engines to help them automate the processes. The third area which we think will come in will be around crypto. As stablecoin starts coming into it, some of the custodial functions, if we can imagine them being developed from the ground up with an AI machine learning capability, we can actually transform a whole bunch of these things at the source as opposed to lay them on to the existing legacy. Those would be the three areas I see right now in payments. We look at the use of AI and machine learning and analytics towards the needs of risk and fraud. Mm -hmm. We focus on that, and, and yet there's a huge potential to use the same data to improve the customer experience. And that can range from the allowing of different demographics groups to, to enter the payments marketplace that they haven't been allowed to get into before, right. to the ability to actually 
predict when consumers going to need the access for payments or how we can support them along the way. How do you see this as this potential from the standpoint of improved consumer experience from a payments perspective beyond speed, risk and fraud? The trigger for that change will come with the widespread adoption of ISO 20022. Because the payment data stream is pretty simple and stupid. <laughs> if, we're, if we're being honest, and you just have to log on to your, your internet banking and you see these payment streams of payments to numbered companies and not really know what it is. And that's a reflection of, of, of the messaging stream we have right now. When that goes to, when Swift drives us to the XML standard in 2022 of Swift MX, and we see a broader uptake outside of the Swift network for, for the ISO standards, you're going to have an enormous set of metadata to do those kinds of things with. And for me, I see them falling into two areas. You will have metadata about the purchase to create an extraordinary customer experience or customer insight for the next experience. And I see AI and ML playing a big role there. I just see a big opportunity for corporates that when we have that enhanced metadata around the payments, there isn't a company in the world that doesn't have a small army of clerks doing financial reconciliation at month and quarter end. That's just the state of our business right now. There isn't a small business in the world that one of the reasons they're not getting off checks is they've got a memo line that tells them what they're writing the check for, and that helps with that process. When all of that has been digitized within the ISO messaging stream, you, you start getting this nirvana state of automatic financial reconciliation of AP to AR, clarification of what the payment was and where it went. And that's going to drive a level of innovation that I'm now into real-time analytics. I'm not closing my books three, four weeks after quarter end. I'm doing it automatically. And that's got treasurers and CFOs jumping. It's sort of the antithesis to the great customer experience. It's a different customer experience of the money guys are going to have a real-time view of money in real time. And they're really excited about it. You know, it's interesting because I'm just closing my business books and personal books right now for this year. And it is amazing how the review of the year has changed so much over the 10 years I've had this business right. where initially there was a whole lot more looking at how the transactions were done with checks received, checks output, people were paying by checks. I may now get five, maybe six checks a year Yep. for payments of my reports. Well, on the other hand, I'm reconciling PayPal, Stripe. I'm reconciling PayPal actually both ways, both from an inflow and outflow perspective. But even all the bank-to-bank -bank transactions, the, the wire transfers that come in, it's all electronic and, and more trackable. And as you said, more than just who it came from, but the whys. The whys are the importance. Yeah. And, and that's something that you never saw in the paper or, or the less digital world. And the ability to take that to a next level is, is really quite exciting. So finally, when it comes to all the digital transformation that's going on in the payments industry and the, the impact of outside the traditional banking ecosystem, so the, the big techs, the fintechs and all that, how do financial institutions keep up with these changes and what do you see the payments industry look like? I'm just going to go five years out because it's so hard to predict any more than that and probably even, even that distance. How do you see the payments industry really transforming during this period? 
as an industry or in the context of bank? Uh, let's start with the industry, and then we're, we obviously can't keep the banks out of that. So, Get my little glass ball for you here, my crystal ball. I think the trend of check declining at 40%, 60% is going to continue. I think cash is going to go the same way. There's maybe a handful of jurisdictions in the, around the world who have finally canceled checks. We're going to see an order of magnitude growth in that as we see replacements come in. And that's a problem for somebody because unless you agree as an industry it's going to die on this date, everybody is going to have this massive expense that they're going to have to amortize over a smaller and smaller base. So checks are going to start causing pain. And I think there's opportunity for, for frankly, thugs like us to come in with an industry utility and help manage this into conclusion. Digital is growing at about I'm going to look at the, the digital growths in Asia, predominantly India and China, which for the last three, four years has been 20, 25%. We're going to feel that growth now. And COVID was just kerosene on the fire pit that, that accelerated that. You know, I, I see the COVID event as mandatory training for 7 billion souls and how to work in a digital world. And they all took the lesson and they're all functioning pretty well now. And that is just going to drive more digital uptake. Anyone who is structured better to deliver digital payments will have an advantage. I think the banks have an extraordinary advantage around their regulatory requirements, around their trust brands. I'm not sure they have the underlying architectures to be the best in class to deliver that experience, nor do they have the capital or operating model to work in a money-losing situation, burn down shareholder capital to build market penetration, which some of the smaller guys have been able to do. So within that context, I think there's going to be a continued rise in the pay tax, and it's whether or not the banks come with it. I think the third thing you're going to see for the foreseeable future is outrageous valuations in this space, that we have a hot stock market right now, Jim. Payments as an industry, as a legitimate, I'm growing at double digits annually industry, and money will always find its way to those industries. And we're seeing that now in the acquisition, the transaction acquisition activity, in the valuations of the, the stripes, the ants, the, the PayPal's. I think that's going to continue for a good long time. When you look at that and, and you're looking at what you just said, do you think then that Obviously, the big banks had the power to be the facilitator of embedded payments for multitudes of players, yes. ranging from being the bank for XYZ small business to some of the big players as well. And, and they're also partnering with some of the big players to make it so that those embedded solutions are there. When you look at that then, when you look at even three years from now, do you see the biggest players in financial services being the payments players, being the, and I must say Amazon is a payments player. I think Apple is a payments player, but certainly PayPal with the platformification of their business and their stated goal of saying, we're going to expand and not only include Bitcoin and all that, but we're going to take on all traditional banking services. Now, they don't want to be a bank. That, that right. Nobody wants to be a bank because of regulations. But again, providing banking services that are embedded and part of everyday life, be it Square or PayPal or anybody else, are these the organizations that will survive in the overall banking environment rather than just in payments? Is, it, is the scope even bigger than what we imagine today? Here's where I'm at. I think the, the, the really successful 
payments guys in the future are using their payments capability for higher costs. So if I look at Alibaba Financial, before their IPO got shut down, $334 billion valuation isn't because their Alipay is, is, oh gosh, wonderful. It's because Alipay is aligned to an extraordinary website called alibaba.com where you can buy anything. WePay is not an extraordinarily wonderful wallet that Tencent's created, but it's aligned to WeChat, which is a lifestyle app, a super app like no other in the world. And you can live your life through WeChat. And as we said at the beginning, so many life events end with a punchline of moving money, and it's integrated to that. I look at cases in, in India who've gone through their own incredible payments modernization from 2016 when Modi demonetized the company and how they went digital in literally months to now where the State Bank of India, 250-year-old bank, has a marketplace that serves the needs of Indians in 93 distinct communities. And they've integrated a payment facility as that punchline to all of those. You're a farmer, you need a seed loan, here's the money to make the seeds. And it's all an integrated punchline to it. But then you come to the Stripes and, and PayPal's who are just payments guys. If I had a pushing me on the spot for a real crystal ball, watch where PayPal gets into the life management business. They're going to find some way to, to yep. put a punchline on that extraordinary offering, that extraordinary penetration, that extraordinary brand. You make it more sticky by creating it, you know, linking it directly into a life is, is where I think they're going to go. Well, you know, PayPal came out and said that the reason why they want to expand is so that people continually are going to their phone to access PayPal in for one reason or another. Sure. Again, it's a, it's about engagement. It, you know, no bank or no organization overall is going to survive as well as the Amazons or the Googles of the world if you're not accessing that tool on a regular basis. And it's immensely my go-to for whatever the category may be, but go-to often, more than just checking balances because you want the person to get into the app more than that. You know, it's, it's going to be interesting. It, it's, a, it's a very transformation-generated area, but, but when you look at what our crystal ball is, on the opposite side of that, when we look at what the opportunities are, what is the risk or challenge that could curtail some of this amazing growth from your perspective, or is there anything? I was on a panel earlier this year, a payments panel, um, and I predicted 2021 is going to be the year of the regulator because this is all wonderful. This is, this is the stuff of marketers' dreams, Jim, that delight customers with extraordinary experience. Yeah, that's all fun and good and fun and games until something goes horribly wrong. And we have regulations for a reason, and our banks are well-versed in that and have a sensitivity to that that all of these paytechs may not have. And I think everybody, whether or not you choose to outsource that regulatory requirement to a bank, as Stripe did with JP, JPMC and Goldman and got banking as a service, you've got to have that ticked and tied because no matter where you stand in the regulatory cycle, it exists for a reason and that's to protect society. And if we, we see a market that's growing exponentially, any regulator, any central bank will protect that economy and will protect those citizens. And we should be welcoming that. And those who are better able to do that are those who are less able. Mike, 
thank you so much for being on the show today and for sharing your insights on the payments business. We could talk, as, as we've mentioned before, we could talk a month from now and the, the topics may be completely different, I, th I think. And the leaders could be different. We're seeing information dropping on a daily basis of partnerships and affiliations and, and growth. And, right. and again, IBM is certainly at the epicenter of a lot of this from both an innovation and capabilities perspective on being able to help organizations, yeah. but even from the standpoint of simplifying the entire journey of transformation. So again, Mike, thank you very much. Uh, appreciate your assistance in, in getting the word out, but also in, in your insights. It's been a pleasure, Jim, and thank you for doing what you do. You're always a voice of challenge to, to the industry. Thank you. Be well. What a great interview with Mike Cook from IBM. You know, it's interesting with so much going on in the payments industry, we sometimes forget how it impacts all other areas of banking. As Mike mentioned, you know, we, we don't always talk about the, the back office transformation, everything else and how it impacts payments overall, but with real-time payments, the fraud, the risk aspects, the use of data for better customer experiences. We need to pay attention to where our placement is as financial institutions in the whole payments ecosystem. Thanks for listening to Bank and Transform Solutions, our brand new extension of the Bank and Transform podcast. If you enjoyed today's interview, please be sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to give our show a five-star rating. Also, be sure to subscribe to the financial brand to get updates on all that is happening in the retail banking industry. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, audio engineer, Sean Roll Hoffman, and video producer, Will Pritz. I'm your host, Jim Maroos. Until next time, embrace change, take risks, and disrupt yourself. You've got questions, we've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business when you need it from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast.